2 Peter 2, verses 10 through 22. Experts in detecting counterfeit currency undergo rigorous training focused solely on the study of genuine bills. Have you ever heard this? People that need to understand and be able to identify counterfeit money. The rumor goes that they don't study the counterfeit. They just get really familiar with the original, and that's all they study. So they can just, when the counterfeit comes, they can just tell right now. Now, some people will suggest that that's how Christians ought to behave. Hey, we just should only focus on the gospel. There's no reason for us to focus on the false teachers. There's no reason for us to look at the false doctrine. Let's just study the true. And they almost say it as as it's kind of a bad thing when people get into trying to discern who a false teacher is or what a false doctrine is. And they almost kind of, it almost sounds more spiritual to not do that and just to focus on the true and then let the false be false kind of thing. Like, I don't get engaged with that. That sounds good, but the problem with that is that's not what the Bible does. In fact, the whole chapter of 2 Peter is a detailed warning about false teachers. And there are many times where Paul exposes false doctrines. In fact, in the book of Thessalonians, people that had said that the day of the Lord had already come. Paul says, no, they're, they're teaching you that the day of the Lord has already come. He's exposing false doctrine. Then there's another part where Paul says, watch out for Hymenaeus and Philetus. Remember that? Watch out for, um, you know, these different people. And he names them by name because they have done harm to the body of Christ. And so I, I appreciate the sentiment of don't get bogged down. Maybe we could say, don't go all the way to this side and make your whole ministry about heresy hunting. You know, that's probably not profitable. I don't know. But at the same time, we just need to be biblical. And so when we're dealing with the chapter that talks about false teachers, I mean, we certainly don't shy away from things like that. I have to say, on Sunday mornings, I would much rather be talking about something positive and uplifting. Um, but this is a tough chapter. So it, these aren't my favorite things to talk about. But because we're committed to going verse by verse and chapter by chapter through books of the Bible, we, we come to these things and with that, we receive, we receive it as from God saying, this is where God wants us because we've just made this commitment. Now, let me blow your mind for a second. We've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, all this other stuff, right? For a long time. And I don't ever sit and plan, what are we going to talk about this week? What are we going to talk about next week? Because we're just going to go through books. Now, the children's ministry, about 11 months ago or so, maybe eight, nine, somewhere in there, we decided to start doing the same thing, going through verse by verse through not necessarily verse by verse, but section by section, straight through the Bible in the children's ministry. Today, the passage I'm teaching is the exact same passage that Aaron is teaching. Nobody could have planned that. Nobody could have planned it. God is trying to say something about false teaching. And I will tell you, the full court press is on with false doctrine. And it is so destructive. It's so seductive. And so I just thought that's a trip, you know, like, I mean, Aaron's like, here, print out the curriculum for tomorrow. And I'm looking, it's like, we're talking about it this week. We're like, okay, God, I mean, you know, so that's what we're going to be talking about today. False teaching. Second Peter chapter two, verse 10 starts in a weird place. We'll get you caught up here. And especially those who walk according to the flesh. See what I mean? It starts with and. We'll get caught up. Verse 10. And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. 
But these, like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of the things they do not understand and will utterly perish in their own corruption and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray and following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. These are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. For when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. While they promise them liberty, they, set, uh, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to have known it, to, or than having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word here today. And I pray, God, that your spirit, Lord, would guide and lead through this. And beyond the words of a man, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us. Because that's what we need. We need an encounter with the true and living God. And thank you that you've given us your word so we can have a true and living encounter with you. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So the outline is very simple. It's three points. Their sins, their allure, their effects. Talking about false teachers. First of all, their sins. Let's look at the first one in verses 10 through 11. This is their pride. He says, especially those who walk according to the flesh. So let's look at verse 9 for a second, if you have your Bible. He said, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. That's what verse 9 says. Last time... Peter was talking about how he was, remember he was using the example of the evil, wicked people in Noah's day and the people in the city of Sodom. Remember, and God, and Peter was telling his readers, he was saying, don't be discouraged by all this evil. God will deal with them. You be encouraged because God knows how to deliver you out of this world filled with temptations and trials and all that. That was last time. And so that's what he was talking about, verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations or trials or you know, suffering or out of this life when it comes time to go and be with him in eternity. And to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. He knows how to hold these ungodly people until the day of judgment that's coming. In verse 10 then, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. God's holding the ungodly in a place until judgment, especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness. This, the idea of this in the Greek has to do with them being in hot pursuit.
pursuit. You ever heard that? Like, you remember the old, you know, TV shows like Dragnet, you know, like, the, you know, hey, Friday, you know what I mean? Just the facts, man. And you remember those shows? And then the cop car is like in hot pursuit of the car before it. You know what I mean? Cha- have you ever heard that term, hot pursuit? I thought I was an old dude up here saying that. So. <laughs> Only the old guys are nodding with me. <laughs> so ugly. Yeah. Well, anyway, what he's saying is these people are in hot pursuit of, the, of pursuing the sinful desires of their flesh. So that's the picture you have in your mind, right? Hot pursuit of it. I am going to apply myself greatly to being able to, you know, fulfill the desires that I have as a human, the lusts of the flesh. They're not always bad things. We think of lusts of the flesh and we think of like guiding light. We think of like, you know, you know, sinful soap opera type of stuff. That's what we think of lust, you know, but it's not always a bad thing. Lust of the flesh can be things like food. I have a lust for food in a sense, in a good sense. Like I have a flesh appetite to eat food. Now it gets perverted because of sin. And if I'm not careful, I'll eat all the food, you know? I mean, just ask my wife, you know, we took home some cookies from Thanksgiving a couple of weeks ago, months ago, and, 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 they, and they made sure to say, these are for Aaron. And and I made sure to eat every one of them, you know, I mean, because it was like, you know, you have these appetites, you know, but because of sin, the flesh is perverted, you know. And if, you know, there are people that are just driven by this and they're saying, hey, this is what it means to be spiritual. Just go ahead and, you know, don't cheat yourself, treat yourself. You know what I mean? And they think of Christianity as a way to just kind of get stuff, you know, like I need, I, I'm going to get some prosperity out of this. I'm going to get some health and some, some wealth and things are going to go right all the time for me. And, and that's what they think of as Christianity. And these are the lusts of the flesh. And he says that these people are in hot pursuit of getting the desires of their flesh met. Okay. And it says also they despise authority. Now it's not authority in general. Okay. I don't have time to unpack this, but what is being said here is they likely despise the authority that Jesus has over their life. These are the sort of people that say, I claim the name of Christ, but yet I'm not really submitted to his government, to his authority. They chase hard after their flesh desires, despising anything or anyone that would tell them otherwise. They are presumptuous, you know, it's audacious, brazen. They're self-willed. That's just, they're arrogant. They're obstinate. They're self-centered. This is their character. These are their sins. They're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. Now, I don't have time to fully unpack this either, but dignitaries here, the NLT has it as, I think, spiritual beings. The idea is these false teachers don't have these ungodly people. They, They don't have a problem speaking evil to evil, wicked angels. I say, what the heck? Why is this important? Stick with me, okay? They're not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries. These ungodly, proud, arrogant people speak wickedly against wicked angelic beings. But verse 11 says, whereas angels who are greater in power and might do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. To make this very simple, Jude verse 9, here's, just keep bearing with me. Jude verse 9 says, yet Michael the archangel, one of the most bizarre passages in the Bible, by the way, Michael the archangel contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not to bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And you say, wait a minute, I'm confused. Let me make this very simple. When Peter's saying these ungodly false teachers, they are so arrogant 
that they go in and they start, have, they're so flippant about the spiritual realm that they're speaking evil about wicked angels. They're, they're just flippant about spiritual things. And in verse 11, you get the clue here. Um, it says, whereas angels, this is talking about good angels, these spiritual beings who are greater in power and might, like these, these angels are so much greater than humans, but these angels don't even do that before the Lord. In other words, these ungodly are so arrogant that they just have no respect for the spiritual realm. And they go in and they just start, uh, you know, boasting and, and commanding and all these different things. Let me uh, illustrate this, something you might be familiar with today. Let me just take a break because this may step on some toes. Um, and that's not ever my intention. But it might happen. Have you ever heard somebody praying saying, I bind you, Satan? Okay, that's exactly what Peter's getting at here. Is these people think, or they'll say, you demon of depression, I bind you in the name of Jesus. They'll be saying things like this. This is exactly what Peter's getting at. He's talking about people that are like arrogantly commanding and, and you know, essentially trying to boss around the devil. Where it's said in Jude, it says, Michael the archangel didn't even do that. He said, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, Michael, the archangel, the one of the most powerful angels, he's bowing and saying, I'm not even going to speak a word against Satan like this because he recognizes that, you know, there's authority in heaven. And he's not so arrogant even in himself, Michael, the archangel, he's not arrogant. So he doesn't command the devil around. He says, the Lord rebuke you. The whole point is these ungodly, these false teachers, they think they have some sort of authority to go into the spiritual realm and just kind of, you know, boss things around. You know, when I hear somebody say this, I bind you, Satan, I think in my mind, I go, no, you didn't. Because if you did, how come he's still at work? How's come, how come he's still at work in the church down the street? How come, like, by the time I got home today, I mean, he was still at, like, how long did you bind him for? Give me the geographical proximity of where he's been bound. You know, no Christian has the authority to bind Satan. It's a twisting of the scripture of, called binding and loosing. Okay, I don't have time to unpack that, but I will tell you, it is a misinterpretation of the verses where Jesus says, what you bind in heaven is bound on earth. It's a total misinterpretation, misteaching of that to make it seem like a Christian has some sort of authority to command demons. You have nothing, you have no authority to command demons. None of us do. We have authority as believers, but it's called exousia. It's delegated authority. And the proper way to exercise this authority is just copy Michael the archangel. The devil's harassing you. Say, the Lord rebuke you. Just realize you don't have any sort of power in you. The only kind of power that's out there that's true, that is, it's, it's in God, okay? So this is an important thing. Peter's saying you got to watch out for people that do this, that seem flippant about spiritual things, think they have, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, power to command spiritual beings. Look at the next thing in verses 12 through the beginning of verse 13, talking about their destiny of these false teachers. Verse 12 says, but these like natural brute beasts are made to be caught and destroyed. They speak evil of things they do not understand. They'll utterly perish in their own corruption and they'll receive the wages of unrighteousness. In other words, they are going to get eternal punishment for, for what they're doing. Okay. Now I'm not going to go through normally like every word like we do, because I think the Lord has something else for us to do. I'm not sure. But I want to pull out this terminology that, that compares them to natural brute beasts. 
Now, what Peter is saying to look out for are natural brute beasts. What does he mean? He means these people are like animals. What does an animal do? An animal wants to eat, sleep, find comfort, reproduce. When somebody is only living for these sort of things, when they're living for flesh appetites, where are we going to eat? Where are we going to do? And that's the only thing their life is concerned about. Spiritually speaking, they're just no different than an animal. And so he says, you got to watch out for this. When this teaching that you're hearing, this false teaching, at the end of the day, when you back up and you think about it, and all it is about is getting stuff, getting healed, becoming prosperous, achieving your dreams. Wait a minute. This is all about me. This should be sending off some red flags. Now look at their behavior. Verse 13, the second part of it, please. It says, and those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. Now carousing, I don't know, when was the last time you used that word? You know, so it's helpful to figure out what it means. Um, He says that these false teachers, they carouse during the daytime. The word carouse means effeminacy, luxury, or softness. So the idea is, is they're living a soft, luxurious life during the daytime when most people are working. See what I mean? Now, let, let me put it, let me quote another commentator about this because he thinks that it has more of a sexual tone. And he says this, though the false teachers tried to pass themselves off as spiritual leaders, possessing a special level of knowledge, they didn't even hide their orgies under the cover of darkness, but would carouse in broad daylight. So, False teachers, they pretend that they have some special knowledge. You hear them talking like they seem like they hear the voice of God audibly. They seem like they have the power to like, you know, if I speak things, they're going to happen. They seem like they've got this sort of thing. Peter says, you got you to watch out for that. Uh, that's, they don't have a special knowledge. Uh, people don't, there isn't in Christianity, there aren't people with special, special powers and knowledge that, you know, it's, it, we're all... You know, and he says what they're doing is they're carousing in the daytime. In other words, these false teachers are living off the money that they're, you know, getting from people with their false teaching, and they're taking it easy all day rather than uh, working. Verse 13 also says that they are spots and blemishes carousing in their own deceptions. So spots and blemishes, that has to deal with um, like a corrupting influence. And it says that they feast with you. So what Peter's saying is he's like, these people are in your love feasts, they're at your koinonias, they're at your potlucks eating with you, but they're having a corrupting influence actually in the church. Why? Because they're turning people to their self-flesh pursuits rather than turning them away from pursuing self and pursuing Christ. They're turning them to pursuing self in the name of Christ. Now, I want to make a statement here that, again, this may be new to you, um, God is clear that in the word that people that are living in blatant mentioning spots and blemishes at the love feast, God is clear in his word that people are in, that are in unrepentant sin that will not repent after being warned. They are to be removed from churches until that they come back and repent. We want to restore people. That's the whole idea of the church is like, well, you're not listening when people are warning you about your sin. Maybe you'll listen to this. Get out of the church because you're corrupting everybody else right? That's hardcore. Now, the Bible's clear about that. Matthew chapter 18, you have to be scriptural as a Christian. 
You can't be governed and led by your thoughts and your feelings, uh, you know, what, what seems natural and right to you. You have to be governed and led by Scripture. Amen. Now, it says that in verse 14, they have eyes full of adultery. Literally, this reads that they have eyes full of an adulteress. What this means, Peter's saying these men have no choice but when they look at a woman to think of her sexually. When a man or a woman gives up their morality, eventually you will get into a condition to where your eyes can do nothing but lust and sin. This is a bad state to be in right here. These people are in bad. Uh, and look what it says there, eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin. This is a bad state. When God gives you over to pursuing flesh, to pursuing the lusts of the flesh, when he gives you over to living for self, you can get yourself into a place where you can't cease from sin. This is terrifying. Now, and he says that they entice unstable souls. These are the sort of people that have no doctrinal foundation. These, these sort of Christians may be extremely zealous for the Lord. They may be able to sing every worship song on the radio, but with no doctrinal foundation, they won't recognize this sort of teaching. In fact, a lot of people in that state hear real biblical teaching and they say, I don't want to deal with that. That's talking about sin and self-denial and the blood of Christ. I don't want to deal with that. I want to deal with prosperity. Show me how to get my needs met through this whole Christian stuff, you know? And so they don't go for it. Now, this is a good application. This is why we teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. This is not a plug for Calvary Chapel. This is a plug of anything for the Bible. Get in the Bible. But you have to get under the Bible and understand the Bible both. Those, both of those things are crucial. Reading and understanding and then applying and being on this foundation. Because how would you know if you're being enticed? Let me give you an example here about how easy it is to entice people. Okay? I could come in here today with a group this big. And I could say, Jesus promises an abundant life. Because he does. That's a, that sounds like a Bible verse. I think I've heard that somewhere, that Jesus came to give life and give it more abundantly. I think I've heard that verse before. Let me point out the problem. If I was to give you all a note card right now and say, write down what the word abundant means to you. Do you think I'd get more than one definition? This is how they work. They use words like this. And here's one of two things is going to happen. Maybe three. A person that knows what spiritual abundance is, is going to go, amen. Jesus gives the abundant life. Like Job, I can say, though he slay me, yo, I will still praise him. That's spiritual abundance, right? I know how to be brought high and brought low, how to abound and how to be abased. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's spiritual abundance. And I know that. And so if Joel Osteen comes up and says, God gives the abundant life, I say, amen, brother, he does. But the thing that he knows about his audience is he knows that some people will think of abundance as material abundance. And so he's not going to break it down to what he's talking about. In fact, on Larry King, when interviewed, he said, I don't talk about sin because people are already beat down enough. Wow, he's still selling even when he's on Larry King. Come to me, all you beat down people, and I'll never tell you about sin. I'll tell you how to be abundant. That's what I need. I need a miracle, man. Oh, you do? Good, because if you try really hard and prove you're you know, all in for Christ, he'll start doing miracles in your life. Oh, it's seductive, man. 
enticing unstable souls. How can you be stable? You need a doctrinal foundation. Let me challenge you here. You need to know what sanctification, glorification, uh, justification are to start with. You need to know what the work of the Holy Spirit is in the life of the believer and what it's not. You need to know how spiritual gifts work. You need to know what it means uh, to die to self. You need to know what it means to crucify, to have the the lust of the flesh, the, the old life crucified, and to walk in the newness of life. You need to know these things as a Christian or else, and again, I'm not meaning to step on toes and be insulting by any means, but you're an unstable soul. You have to be on Christ, the solid rock. All other ground is sinking sand. Okay? Apologize for the intensity and the passion about this. I don't want to make people's heart rate come up. And the last thing we ever want to do is manipulate people with emotionalism and stuff like that. I hate that stuff with passionate hatred. I just don't have very good self-control. So please forgive me, okay? It says they have a heart trained in covetous practices. You know how some people go to the gym and they train their muscles to wrestle? Well, these people have trained, they've been uh, schooled well in the school of self-fulfillment, okay? Now, Peter's going to tell readers that these ungodly false teachers are actually following the way of someone from the Old Testament from Israel's past, a guy named Balaam, okay? Verse 15, they've forsaken the right way, they've gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor. You guys know who Balaam is? Raise a hand. Okay, do you know what the way of Balaam is? Okay, turn to Numbers chapter 22, please. I'm going to break this down. This is one of the most bizarre passages in the Bible. This is, we just crossed over the choose your own adventure part right there, okay? This is either going to tank and your head's going to blow up from too much information or the Holy Spirit's going to help you to understand, and uh, we're all going to leave here more educated about the Bible today, okay? Numbers chapter 22, I suppose I need to turn there myself, right? Oh my goodness. I want you to know who Balaam is because he shows up a few times in the Bible. And when he says that these false teachers have followed the way of Balaam, you're like, well, what does that mean? So I want to show you what that means. Balaam is an anomaly, we'll tell you that. He's a mysterious character, and the account of Balaam in the Old Testament, this is just some bizarre stuff. The children of Israel, would you bring up the next slide, please, Tyler, the map? Okay, you guys have been going through the Bible reading in a year. Um, You started out in the book of Genesis. Then at the end of the book of Genesis, Israel went into a place called Goshen, you remember? Because Joseph was in command. Um, remember the brothers of Jacob? They sold Joseph into slavery. He ends up becoming, you know, vice president, essentially, of Egypt, and he's in control. And then so Joseph then brings his brothers into Egypt, and uh, they live in the land of Goshen. Then the beginning of the book of Exodus, um, it tells you that the Pharaoh is, like, kind of concerned that they're going to, like, overthrow him, and so he puts them in harsh slavery. Remember this? Making bricks. And then God, by through Moses, leads them out of slavery, and then leads them. And he, remember he tells Moses, or Abraham, he says, I'm going I'm to give you a, a land to go into. We refer to it as the promised land. Okay, so then when they come out of Egypt, led by Moses, remember the 10 plagues, frogs, gnats, all that stuff, Passover is the last one, okay? Then God leads them out into the promised land. So they're here, and they need to go here, Kadesh Barnea, that's the promised land. Now, they could have gone straight here to here, but God chose to lead them here. 
And because they failed to believe God's promises, they went, and it took 40 years to get somewhere where it just took it to a few days. You know what I mean? So isn't that how we do it though? God says, I'm going to take you into some place. You say, I don't know. You know, you go, and eventually, you know, he has to like humble you and, you know, everything. That's a side note. So this is their journey. Now they're on this journey. Book of Exodus, book of Exodus, book of Numbers kicks in. Mount Sinai. This is where God gives them what? Ten Commandments. Good. Uh, the whole book of Leviticus takes place right there, by the way. Okay. They leave there after the book of Leviticus and the book of Numbers, and they're, they're wandering now in the wilderness. Birkenstocks don't wear out 40 years. Because of unbelief, the whole generation that came out of here dies in this wilderness. Can't go into the promised land. Two people get to go in. Who, who knows who they are? Good job. But Joshua and Caleb. Exactly. So they wander around, and then they get to the plains of Moab. And when they're at the plains of Moab, the king of Moab, this guy named Balak, he's pretty concerned about this mob of a million-something people, more. And he says, these people are going to take over my land. And so he pays this dude, Balaam, to curse his people. Everybody's tracking? Numbers chapter 22. Then the children of Israel moved and camped to the, in the plains of Moab on the side of the Jordan across from the Jericho, just as we've just seen there. Now, Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all, all that Israel had done to the Amorites. Uh, Israel wiped out the Amorites. It was like, oh my gosh, these people are tough, man. God's on their side. And Moab was exceedingly afraid, verse 3, of the people because they were many, and Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, now this company will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field. These people are going to destroy us. We got to do something about them. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. Then he sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river, in the land of the sons of his people to call him saying, look, a people has come from Egypt. See, they cover the face of the earth and are settling next to me. Therefore, please come at once Curse this people for me. This is Balaam. He's being offered money to curse the Israelites. Go down to verse 7. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with a diviner's fee in their hand to go to Balaam. They're going to give him money. They're going to give money to a prophet um, and they're going to pay Balaam. Now, go over to verse 9. Then God said to Balaam, so they get to Balaam and then they, they make this proposition to him. And, and Balaam then, verse 9 says, God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? And Balaam said to God, he goes, Balak, the son of Zippor, Balak, the king of Moab, he has sent to me saying, look, a people's come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth. Come now and curse them for me. Perhaps I'll be able to overpower them and drive them out. Verse 12 says, and God said to Balaam, this is why he's an anomaly. He's getting paid to go curse people, but yet it's, he's an anomaly. God speaks to this guy. Now God speaks to Balaam and says, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people for they are blessed. So God says, uh, no, you don't. You're not going to curse them. They're blessed people. Balaam rises in the morning, goes to the prince of, uh, he goes to uh, the princes of Balak. And, and essentially he tells the king, he goes, uh, you know, I'm not going to do it. Verse 18, Balaam answered the servants of Balak. Now this is the second time they've propositioned him. He says, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord, my God, to do less or more. In other words, yeah, I'm a prophet, but if God tells me whatever word God puts in my mouth, 
That's the only word I'm going to speak. That's commendable of a prophet, by the way. Okay? Now, verse 20, God comes to Balaam at night and he says to them, if this man come to call you, rise and go with them. But only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Then God's anger was aroused because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. That's kind of weird. God says, go ahead and go with him. But then he goes and God's mad, like that God changed his mind. What's going on here is there's perversity in Balaam's heart. He's like half in for the Lord, but kind of a prophet for hire still. And God knows that. And so he sends, next picture, please. He sends this angel now to stand in the way of him. Verse 22, and he was riding his donkey and his two servants were with him. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. The donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So this is a picture of this. This wasn't actually taken at the scene. It's, just went, it's not off of, <laughs> took it off his iPhone, sent it to me. No. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back onto the road. So Balaam kicks, the donkey goes off the road. Come on, stupid donkey. Then the angel of the Lord stood in the narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on, his, on this side and a wall on that side. He's walled in now, sitting on his donkey and an angel's in front of him. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So donkey moves over, pins Balaam. Then the angel of the Lord, verse 26, went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the ASPCA went after Balaam. No, just joking. Verse 28 says, Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. And she said, What have I done to you that you struck me these three, three times? This is supernatural. This is the one of the most bizarre verses in the Bible. This is bizarre. I mean, this is comforting to me, by the way. Here's a complete aside. When I start to say, I don't know if I can serve the Lord. I don't know if I can serve you, Lord. I don't know if I'm very good at this. I'm always reminded that if he could use this dumbass to speak, and he could maybe use me to speak. So, good enough. The, the King James Version translates it dumbass. I'm not, I'm not swearing in church. Verse 29, And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have abused me, I wish there were a sword in my hand. Oh, he, the donkey abused him. Isn't that how abusive relationships work? Isn't that? You abused me. No, I didn't. You're gaslighting me. No, I'm not. You're gaslighting me. Are you? Okay, maybe I am. <laughs> anyway, side note. I wish there were a sword in my hand for now. I would kill you. Verse 30. So the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? He said, no, I guess, I guess not. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand and he bowed his head and he fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you because your way, what way? The way of Balaam. Because your way is perverse before me. Quite interesting that somebody can look very Christian, hear from the Lord, be serving the Lord so it looks in one thing, but yet the Lord's assessment of that person is, you're perverse, man. 
and I'll come out and oppose you. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would have killed you by now. Don't you love it when the angel of the Lord tells you that? Good thing your donkey swerved you off the road, because if not, I would have killed you. Verse 34, and Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I do not... I did not know that you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displeases you, I'll turn back. Let me summarize. The angel of the Lord says, go ahead and go with, okay? And when you get there, just do what the Lord tells you. Chapter 23. Now, Balaam's talking to the king. Sorry, verse 41 of chapter 22. Balak took Balaam up to what's called the high places where Baal worship was done. So he's up on a high mountain and he's looking at all the people of Israel. And Balak is trying to get Balaam to look at all these people and go, wow, this is dangerous. I should curse them. Verse 23, then Balaam said to Balak, build seven altars for me here and prepare for me seven bulls and seven rams. Okay, so Balaam, get, get the picture. He's saying, build these altars. We're going to make sacrifices. Then I'm going to ask the Lord. He's going to give me the word to curse these people. So he's, he's pursuing it, right? So let's, let's skim around here. They offer the animals, verse 5, 23 of chapter 23. Then the Lord put a word in Balaam's, Balaam's mouth, and he said to Balak, thus you shall speak. And so he gives Balaam this word to speak now over Israel. And you find it in verses 7 through 10. We're not going to go through it, but I'll tell you what it is. It's a blessing. It's not a cursing. You know, so Balak's like, what are you talking about, man? I told you to curse these people, but yeah, you're blessing them, okay? Through the whole chapter, this happens into chapter 24 also. This happens three times. Same thing every time. Okay? Now, get to, go down to the, the very end of chapter 24. This goes back, you know, back and forth three times. Balak the king, he says, look, I would have paid you a whole lot of money, but your God kept you from getting the money, essentially. And so he gets to the end of the chapter there. Balaam rose, verse 25, departs. He goes back to his place, and Balak also went his way. Now look at verse 25. You're going to really have to think with me through this one, okay? I told you this was either going to go one way or the other. Now, Come along, hopefully. Okay, verse, 20, verse 1 of chapter 25. Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. Balaam's like, I can't curse them, but they've sure been cursed here somehow or another. They're committing harlotry with pagan women. They're not supposed to be doing that. Now, I don't have time to fully unpack this, but it's supposed that although Balaam didn't take the money for cursing, that he did give them this idea saying, I can't curse them, but I'll tell you what will get them. Send in pagan women to seduce them. And God's a jealous God, and he'll take care of them. You say, how can you make such an assumption? Well, go to Numbers chapter 31, please. Look at verse 16. talking about this fact that Israel fell into harlotry. Chapter 31, verse 16 says, Look, these women caused the children of Israel through the counsel of who? To trespass against the Lord. So he did end up giving them some sort of counsel, although he wasn't able to curse them. See, he played like, I can only do what God tells me. 
But yet, because he still wanted the money, he did give him counsel that caused Israel to fall. You see how he's an anomaly? Turn to the book of Revelation, please, chapter 2, verse 14. We're done with numbers, so don't worry about holding your finger there. Revelation chapter 2, verse 14. This is Jesus pronouncing woes and um, just essentially messages to churches, um, 90 to 100 AD-ish, somewhere in there. He says, Revelation 2, verse 14, but a few things I have against you. This is Jesus talking to this church at Pergamos. He says, but I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. You see how you put all that together and you find out that Balaam did take some money from this Balak guy and he taught them how he says, I'll give you the key of how Israel will fall. Although I won't speak beyond what the Lord's told me. He's like half in and half out. And that's the way of Balaam being perverse and being a minister for hire only. Back to Peter. And we're going to end up here. Eventually we're getting there. I can't believe that we just went there and, oh my gosh, your head didn't explode. Mine almost did. Peter, please, back to our passage in Peter. Okay. You guys okay? All right. Verse 15. They have forsaken the right way. They've gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. Oh, hot dog. I know exactly what that means now. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. I know exactly what that means now. When you read that now, can you say with confidence you know exactly what that means? Okay, good. Then mission accomplished. So Balaam's this prophet guy, he hears from God. He says he won't go beyond what he says. Yet the angel calls his way perverse. The implication, he didn't use sorcery to curse Israel. And he didn't, he, he didn't go beyond the word of the Lord. But yet he gave Balak this information that taught them, you know, that caused their demise. Okay, weird guy, I'll obey God. Yet for the right price, I'll sin. Peter uses Balaam as an example of what false teachers are. For the right price, man, I'll teach false doctrine. If you've shown me a way to become profitable by leaving certain doctrines out, Joel Osteen has the biggest church in America. Why do you think that people are flooding to churches in huge droves? Why do you think that? It's not saying that every big church is a bad church, okay? We're not saying that. A lot of them are because they have, the right price has come along to start leaving things out of the Bible, Now, when I read the Bible, we're going to conclude here. When I read the Bible, I'm always asking, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus in this? Where's Jesus in this passage, okay? He's the opposite of Balaam. He's the opposite of a false teacher. Balaam was for hire. Jesus gave freely. Balaam was for self-advancement. Jesus came 
and sacrificed for us. The false teachers, the ungodly Peter warned about were prideful, arrogant, and self-centered. Jesus is humble, lowly, gentle, and other-centered. False teachers, notice what it says, are like wells without water. Can you imagine you're trekking through the desert? You're so thirsty and in the distance you see, there's a well. I'm about to die of thirst. And you get up there and there's no water in it. That's what a false teacher is like. I hear them speaking all these words about freedom and abundance and prosperity. And I get there and I find none of that stuff is there. Like it's been promised. There's no living water. The false teachers are like wells without water. Jesus says, come to me and I'll give you the living water. Right? When I'm listening through things and I'm trying to discern whether it's about nutrition, whether it's about supplements, whatever it is, I always ask this question. Who stands to profit off of this information? So think through this with me. Who stands to profit off of what Jesus is offering? You do. That's it. That's it. When you can follow the money, Jesus doesn't put you on some treadmill trying to hopefully you'll get it right. So once you get up enough faith and once you follow Jesus correctly and once you do the right things and proclaim and decree and do all these things correctly that then God will bless you. He doesn't put you on a treadmill like that. He says, look, I've done everything for you that you, that you need and it's all, become, it's all at my expense. I've come and done this because he looked upon people and he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He looked on the multitudes with compassion and he said, Lord, they don't know what they're doing. They're just lost sheep. I'll come and I'll give my life for them. And he lays his life down freely. He says, anybody that would come drink, drink freely from the fountain of life. And this is what he does. And he comes and people pervert this. People say, look at, I want to take Jesus free offer and I want to figure out a way where I can get some piece of that. And it's despicable. And that's why Peter is warning using these words like he's using. He's saying these people are reserved, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. I don't know what that is, but I don't want that. <laughs> that sounds bad. This is why the Bible warns so much about this sort of thing. Now, we're going to stop here today. I'm not going to get into the rest of this passage because it's, you know, it's time to go. But let me give you a few things to think about by way of application. Beloved people, you need to check your heart. And you need to say, am I being led by my desires? Because if I don't believe that all of my needs are met in Christ, whether I'm in a hospital bed, a wheelchair, suffering, struggling with cancer have nothing to offer, nothing to give, no money to put in the plate. If I don't have anything, do I still have all I need in Christ? Because if you can't answer that question in the affirmative like that, you are susceptible to manipulation. You need to check your heart. I don't demand anything from God. I don't deserve anything from him. You know, if I got what I deserve from God, if you got what you deserve from God, do you know what you would get? You get eternity away from him because you've broken his laws repeatedly in thought, word, deed, and motive. And it is only by his grace and mercy for you, and his love, his unending love for you. It's only by those things that he offers salvation to you. And, you know, I say, Jesus, I couldn't, how could I even ask for any more? How could I even ask for any more unless I was arrogant, unless I was greedy and I was me-centered? How could I want or demand anything more? It's despicable. It's despicable what these people do. Friends, you need to be well-fed. 
This is not a plug for Calvary Chapel, Mason City. Please go wherever God leads you, but make sure they're feeding you the Bible, not their opinions, not politics, not psychology, not self-help, not psychiatry, not Carl Jung, not Freud, none of this stuff. That is wells, wells without water. It's man-centered. You need God. You need the word of God, the unadulterated, pure word of God. That's what you need as a child of God. That's all you need. Peter says, I've given you all things pertaining to life and godliness. All things. Do you believe that today? Because you need to be well fed. Listen, Proverbs 27, 7 says this. The satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb, but to, listen, but to a hungry soul, every, every bitter thing is sweet. You know what that means? If I go grocery shopping super hungry, I come home with a cart full of garbage. <laughs> Do you understand? If I'm not well fed as a child of God, eating in the green pasture, then every time somebody comes along with these tinkling little things about prosperity, I'm going to get led to that and led to this and led to that. Last thing, dear ones. Okay, listen. This false teaching is especially, especially appealing to people who are suffering. This is what's so insidious about it. It's, it's, you know, when the greedy people get the greedy teacher and the greedy people go over there and do their greedy thing and they end up in hell, they kind of get what's coming to them. The thing that's very despicable is there are desperate people that say, I need a miracle, man. My kid's dying. I need a miracle. And these people will say, well, yeah, come in and give us some money and try really hard and do all this stuff. And if you get it right, then God will, God will bless you. He's guaranteed to do it. You just have to decree it, decree it, declare it, and all this other stuff. And you just have to be positive and make sure you, make sure you don't have any lack of faith or any fear or anything like that. And then God will, he's obligated to perform. This is so insidious because these people prey off of desperate people. Listen, if you're in a desperate season and you've been groping around and you're saying, I just need some relief and you've been trying to get it from this well without water and this well without water, you've been turned into man, you've been turned into psychology, you've been turned into all these other things, trying to get what your soul needs met, you need Jesus. You need his word. You need to be in prayer. You need to be in the word. You need to be in fellowship with other believers. And you need to trust that God has given all things pertaining to life and godliness. Because to the degree that you don't believe that is the degree that you're in turmoil. You understand? This is what you were created for, is Christ Jesus. You were made by him for him. And he is all you need. Don't let these people turn you into merchandise.